0: We are going through the study of theology proper, or the doctrine of God, the study of God, whatever term you want to use. The notes are available for you, but tonight we're coming to the spirituality of God, or God is a spirit. So we take that from John chapter 4, and we'll read verses really uh, 22, well, we'll read 21 to 24 Um, But it's a wonderful chapter, many wonderful things in this John chapter 4. uh, Salvation, revival, blessings, great truths, but we'll only focus on one point tonight. But John chapter 4, reading verse 21 down to verse 24. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen. We know the Lord, but his blessing to the reading of his word. In John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ is on his way to Jerusalem and he must needs go through Samaria. We read that at the opening verses and that word must needs really means it is necessary for him to go through Samaria. The reason being there was a woman of Samaria who must be confronted and convicted about her sin. And then she must be converted by faith alone in the promised Messiah, who is Christ himself. In conversation with this Samaritan woman, the Savior speaks of worship to God. Now it's evident from this reading that there is a division between the Jews and the Samaritans. They had no dealing with one another many reasons but one in particular highlighted in this chapter is the division, the distinction that had to do with how both groups worshipped. It's clear by these verses that the Samaritans worshipped in an entirely different manner from the Jews. We learn in Second Kings chapter 17 and verse 29 that the Samaritans had founded their own system of worship, which was a mixture of heathenism and Judaism. They worshipped false gods, and they also worshipped Jehovah. And so there was this mixture. And then when they worshipped Jehovah, they worshipped him on their own accord and in their own manner. And so when speaking with this Samaritan woman, the Lord clarified that true worship what true worship is, and who is to be worshipped. The Lord said in verse 22, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. This woman was ignorant of the true way to worship God, how to approach him and find acceptance with him. The Lord said in verse 24, God is a spirit. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The original reading of the opening words, God is a spirit, read this way. God is spirit. And the meaning of those words is to emphasize that God is not a spirit among spirits. Rather, he is the creator of all superior to all his creation. And therefore he must be worshipped through his own appointed way, by faith in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is to be worshipped on the ground of redemption, redemption that is accomplished by Christ's life and death, and then redemption that is accepted by Christ's resurrection. So such redemptive truths, they must be applied to the believing sinner. Now, So as the Lord speaks to this woman, and it's a wonderful chapter when she comes to Christ and puts her faith in him, and she goes round and tells others of this man Christ and what he has done with her, in her and through her. And then others come to Christ. It's a wonderful chapter of revival of the movings of God. And just as a side note, I encourage you to tell others what the Lord has done for you. Come see a man, what he has done for me, who has told me all things, one who has saved your soul, redeemed your soul, and therefore many will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for tonight, in continuing the study of the doctrine of God or theology proper, we come to consider the spirituality of God or God is a spirit or God is spirit. And such words are often quoted in prayer, whether from the pulpit or in public prayer or private prayer. We acknowledge God is spirit. Therefore, we must understand what do these words mean? God is spirit or God is a spirit. Notice some simple thoughts as we go through this. First of all, God is immortal. First Timothy chapter 1, 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Who only hath immortality. When we talk about the word immortal, it means deathlessness, state of no death. It describes the state of not being subject to death, that which will never die. And so when we refer to God, God is spirit, and we say that God is immortal, what we are saying, he is not subject to death. He will never and cannot die. God is eternal, imperishable, in... uh, not able to die. He is the source of all life. He will never know death, decay or loss of strength or loss of power. God's immortality is true eternity. His immortality is from eternity to eternity. In other words, God has no beginning and he has no end. In the beginning God. Now when we come to mankind, mankind we have a beginning and we have an ending. We are mortal and we must die. It is appointed unto men once to die. But as we think of the study of God, there is a misunderstanding that is often argued that since God is immortal, incapable of death, but Jesus is God but Jesus died then surely Jesus is not God or God is not immortal you get these people who overthink things and begin to go into arguments and they try to uh, to add confusion however it really is to misunderstand and misapply the whole uh, study of God and the whole purpose of Christ and redemption in order For the redemption of sinners. It was necessary for the absolute spirit to assume a human form. The eternal son of God could only be capable of death through the incarnation. Taking human flesh onto himself. And so God the son came into this world. And took our flesh on to himself. He who was, as Isaiah 9 verse 6 calls, the everlasting father. And who Micah chapter 2 verse 5 refers to whose goings have been of old from everlasting. Carried out his eternal covenant of grace to restore fallen men and women back to God. By taking to himself a true humanity. Therefore, it was absolutely necessary for one who is spirit, absolute spirit, to take human form. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We learn Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God. And so Christ, the eternal Son of God, was not created. Always remember that. He was not created. Rather, he is from everlasting to everlasting. Again, John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus saith unto them, that's to the Jews, fairly, fairly, I say unto you, before Abraham was I am. You see, God cannot die. Deity cannot die. But in taking a human nature onto himself, he could die. God manifest in the flesh. And since it was man who had sinned, therefore it must be man who must pay the penalty of sin. And therefore Christ in his humanity... Did not lose his deity. Rather he took on to himself. What he did not previously have. A human nature. That is why he is the God man. Both God and man. Two distinct natures. In one person forever. He is related to both. And therefore he is qualified to save sinners. So Christ's death and his resurrection guarantees that at Christ's return, their glorious resurrection, and they will be forever with the Lord. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 53, We shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And so we learn God is spirit or God is a spirit. He is immortal. He cannot die. Notice also, God is immaterial. God is immaterial. When we say that God is immaterial, we mean that he is without human features. That means God is without a body and without a soul. God is spirit. He is absolute spirit. Remember the Lord Jesus After his resurrection, in speaking to his disciples, he said in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me. Now there are differences of opinion among men. Uh, scholars, Bible commentators, preachers, you name it, on the creation or the design of men, mankind. Maybe you have studied this. Maybe you have thought about what I'm just about to say right now. And if you haven't, don't let it keep you up at night time. But there are two simple thoughts. One is called man is either bipartite or tripartite. Now, we will cover this when we come to the creation of man in a future study. But what does that basically mean? Some hold that man is bipartite. That means man is made up of both body and soul. And so there are preachers who hold that. You're made up of body and soul. But there are others who will say, no, man is made uh, Off or consists whatever you want phrase you want to say he is tripartite, that means body, soul, and spirit, and so you will hear those and maybe you have your own thoughts on that. There, man is either body and soul or body, soul, and spirit, and there's good men who hold both. As I said, I would not get caught up in the whole. Debate on it. I wouldn't let you sleep over it. I wouldn't let you keep it up all night. Uh, it does not affect salvation, rather. Uh, the point really is to grasp that man's makeup is both physical and spiritual. We have a body. We are flesh. But we also have a spiritual side, whether that's soul or some would say soul and spirit. And so it's a wonderful study just to go through. But as I said, I wouldn't make it an issue of debate. I wouldn't start, uh, you know, falling out with other people if someone says either or. But the point I'm making is this. We are not absolute spirit. We are both uh, material and spiritual. We have a body and we have a soul uh, where God is absolute spirit. He does not have a body. He is absolute spirit. He is immaterial. Now, this confuses many because the Bible speaks in a manner to attribute bodily parts to God. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27 speaks of the arms of God of God or you may hear that phrase the arm of the Lord or Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 speaks about his eyes 2nd Kings chapter 19 verse 16 speaks about his ear Psalm 18 verse 9 speaks about his feet Psalm 8 verse 3 speaks about his fingers Numbers chapter 11 verse 23 refers to his hand. Isaiah 58 verse 14 refers to his mouth. And so what these are termed, these are termed as anthropomorphic expressions. And that phrase anthropomorphic, really it's it's to use uh, or to use to explain features or characteristics of God by using human description. And so to help our limited mind to help our weak understanding of who God is and how God works in his power his love, his mercy his favour we give these expressions to God and so when we think about the power of God we say his mighty arm or you think you work with your hands. And so we apply that to God just to help our understanding. Lord, work mightily. Or don't we hear with our ears? And so we say, the ear of the Lord is open. What's it mean? Is God is hearing our prayer. Or I see what you're doing. And so we express that to God. We give those features over to God to help our understanding, to say that the Lord sees all we do. And so these are all things that we do, but such expressions, and we must make that clear, do not mean that God possesses these physical features such as hands, feet, eyes, ears, and all the rest, because he is spirit. He is immaterial. I must make that clear. God is spirit. So whenever we read these phrases, the arm of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, they are there to help us Understand who God is, how God works. But God himself does not have these things. And therefore we look at Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh. Because Christ said, I and my Father are one. And so to see Christ is to see the Father. To see God's works is to look at the person of Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So we must keep that before us. God is immortal. He cannot die. He is immaterial. He does not have these body uh, features, bodily features. He is absolute spirit. But they're there when you read your Bible to help you, to cause you to understand with our limited, our finite, our weak understanding to grasp these phrases, the work of God. The eyes of the Lord, He sees you and all the rest. But notice thirdly, God is indivisible. First Timothy chapter one, verse 17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. So God is invisible. Again, first Timothy chapter six, verse 16. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto whom no man hath seen at any, uh, has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. In reference to fallen man, we live by sight. We can see with our physical features, but we cannot see our soul or our spirit. It is invisible. The spiritual part of our life. So I can look at my fingers. I can see my fingers. But I cannot see my soul. I cannot see uh, that which is invisible. But we understand that those truths, that we are a soul. Remember, God breathed into man and he became a living soul. And there's another interesting debate that you can enter into. It's often said uh, and I throw it out to you and you can think about it yourself. Does man have a soul or is man a soul? And those are things that uh, are thrown out there. Uh, you get them in Bible colleges all the time or these different things. Uh, is man a soul or does man have a soul? And so maybe terminology, but those things, man became a living soul. God breathed into him the breath of life. So man really is a living soul soul. And the whole point is this, at death the soul leaves the body. But again we do not see that. So if someone uh, if someone had just died before us right now, we would only see their body but we would not see their soul going up into heaven. That is invisible. That spiritual part is invisible. Remember the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 35, verse 18. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died. This is, uh, remember Joseph's mum, that she called his name Benoni. And so we learn that whenever, uh, Rachel was, uh, dying or passing from this scene of time, uh, her soul departed from her body. Again, Luke chapter 23, verse 46. When the Lord died upon the cross, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit, having thus said, he gave up the ghost. And so God is spirit. He is invisible. However, fallen man has to create this visible image of God. He has to create something visible of the invisible uh, to worship. And that's why the Samaritans, they had formed their own imagination, as do all false cults. Uh, They have these idols to what they think God looks like. God who is spirit, God who is invisible. Yet they have these shapes and these moles of what they think God would look like. For instance, we learn Paul said of unbelievers in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, that they became fain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Remember when Paul went to Athens and there in Greece in Acts chapter 17 verses 23 to 24, he's seen the Athens having all these different idols and statues. And it came to one that had an inscription to the unknown God. And so Paul took this opportunity to tell them of the unknown God. And the whole point they named the unknown God because they had that many. They thought, well, in case we miss one, we'll have to get this covered. And we'll just call him uh, the unknown God. And so Paul said this of the one whom they ignorantly worshipped. I declare him unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth life, giveth to all life, breath, and all things. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, the Lord speaking about idols. Thou shalt have no gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. That's why you ought not to have pictures of Christ, or God, or anything, or what you term, whatever, in your house. I know people say, but they think it makes it better, or it's religious, whatever it may be. They are idols, they're statues, they're feign imaginations, and you ought not to have them. These pictures of Jesus, or these pictures of Christ on the cross, or all these things, you ought not to have them. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And so to take an image of Christ or an image of God whose spirit is to break God's law. But man's answer is this, that we need something visible to worship one who is invisible. And so we need this statue or we need this we idol to pray to, to bow down to. However, in answering that, there are certain, there are certain things that we cannot see. But we know that is real. We cannot touch or see pain, but we know it is real. And therefore, God, who is absolute spirit, the invisible God, has made himself visible in the person of Christ. You ever want to see all the perfections and attributes of God? You look to Christ. Want to see the work of God? You look to Christ. The Lord answered Philip's question and John chapter fourteen verse eight show us the Father and the Lord said He that has seen me has seen the Father So one who is spirit, invisible, dwells in unapproachable light, chose to reveal himself to sinners in Second Corinthians chapter four as the light of the gospel. And therefore Peter said in first Peter chapter one verse eight Whom Having not seen, ye love. And that one whom they love, having not seen, he is precious unto them. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord Jesus, when he comes back, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice fourthly, God is infinite. Again, means God is unrestricted, unlimited psalm 139 verse 7 whether shall i go from thy spirit whether shall i flee from thy presence also you can look at john 1 verse 18 and deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 12 but god's spirituality he is infinite uncontained unembodied in the sense that he cannot be limited or confined to a body Nothing can hinder or limit God. But in relation to other spirits which he created, they are limited. A man's soul or spirit is embodied, meaning that it is confined to the body it dwells in. So our bodies uh, or our souls dwell in our body. And that's why at the point of death there is the separation from the soul and the body. So we have limitations. We are not infinite. We are finite. We are weak. We are limited. We are restricted. We have boundaries. We cannot, uh, in a sense, um, go from here to heaven or here uh, in America or whatever it may be. But God is omnipresent. Only God is absolute spirit, so the angelic host were created by God and for God, they are limited as well. We learn Solomon in repairing to build the house of the Lord said in second chronicles chapter two verse six, but who is able to build him and house? seeing the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him God is not limited to one place we are, but He is not also think of the Lord Jesus Christ when he spoke to Nicodemus. We learn in John chapter three verse thirteen. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from earth, even the Son of man, which is In heaven. Now, those words are amazing. There are Christ present upon earth and in heaven. And that's why He is able to draw alongside us tonight as we're here in this room, but also other people who are not in this room. That's why right now He can meet with men and women believers who are meeting together, maybe in America. Or Scotland, or different places, and meet with us at the same time, but we cannot be uh, do that and so while I 'm here at church, I'm bringing forth god 's word, and someone else is maybe listening from the other side, the Lord is able to draw near because he is infinite, he has no restrictions, he is not limited, he is not bounded, he is uncontained, you cannot. Uh, box God in. He is greater. He is, uh, um, if you want to use the word, superior, the supreme one. We cannot limit him. We cannot box him in. Oh yes, the things we think about, what we want to do, how God's work can go forward, but we limit God, we box God in. Well, this can't happen and that can't happen, but God has no limits. So all these truths, they are mind-blowing. They hurt our minds because our minds are limited. Our understanding is restricted. But these are truths we're called to believe and to rest upon and to defend. Remember, that's why you always go back to the foundation. God is eternal. But God is also incomprehensible. We will never fully grasp everything there is to know about God, and all these things that I've mentioned tonight, maybe you would sit there and say, Phew, this has gone right over my head, and that's fine. Get the notes, listen, read over them, listen to it again. But the truth is, there's just things we will never get, uh, never fully understand, no matter how many times we go through them, but we're called to believe them. We're called to trust in our Savior. Notice finally, God is indivisible. Another term that is often used for this would be the simplicity of God. And so God's indivisibility teaches that he cannot be divided and he cannot be separated. And so the indivisibility or the simplicity of God teaches there is no distinction or separation between his nature and his perfections. God is everywhere, present meaning in every place is all of God's being. So for instance, the shorter catechism, question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, for our, as we said, finite, limited minds, we like to break things down. And we like to divide and separate things to help our understanding. We have titles and headings and all these things to help our process. But I say this, we cannot break God down. We cannot divide God. This means God's perfections have not been added to him, nor do they improve God. He is not God plus his perfections, and his perfections is his love, his holiness, his justice, and all these other great truths. He is not more of one perfection and less than another perfection. In other words, God is love, but we cannot say he is more love but less justice. Or more good, but less righteous. We cannot divide and separate and put all his perfections on a different level. We cannot divide, mix, and match. Put all his perfections into different levels. He's more loved than he is wrath, or whatever you want to mention. Every attribute, every perfection, every characteristic, is identical with his being because they make up God who God is. God is these things. Therefore, to worship God, we worship him in truth as he is revealed in his word, as he is revealed through his Son. And so God, tonight we've looked at the spirituality of God. God is spirit. And we've seen all these particular thoughts that God uh, is immortal. He cannot die. We have learned that God is immaterial. He has no bodily features. But all the bodily features that we read of in Scripture, it's there to help our understanding of how God works. God is invisible. We learn as well that God is infinite. Again, unrestricted, no boundaries, unlimited. And then God is indivisible. He cannot be divided or separated. And so we trust that these things will help us in our study of who God is. And don't worry, we'll get more practical As we go along, uh, we're maybe now at the harder points, uh, but we'll get to more uh, easier ground in that sense. But I trust that God will bless us. Uh, It's good to go through these things. It's good to keep going over them and over them and over them. No man has ever got to the point where he can say, I've got it all and I've got it sorted out and all the rest. We're always learning and learning and learning and learning and going over and going over and going over because we're always growing in grace. And so that's what it means. Uh, God is spirit. Uh, these thoughts that we've mentioned tonight. So may the Lord write his word upon our heart for his name's sake. We'll just unite together in prayer before the, the broadcast goes off. Our Father and our God, we confess, O God, and thank thee that thou has called us to learn more of thyself. We're so glad, Lord, thou art a wonderful God, a mighty Saviour. And Lord we pray we'll continue to grow in grace, we'll continue to know of our God. We're so glad, Lord, that thou art infinite. Lord, thou art holy. We're so glad, O God, that thou art one who knows us better than we know ourselves, And therefore, we just stand and wonder. We just stand, O God, and be still and to know that thou art God and beside thee there is none other. Thou art the true, the living God. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou art infinite. Thou art unchanging. Lord, we're so glad this day that Thou art our Saviour and our Redeemer. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.